Well, good morning to you and uh, welcome to another day as we go through the Word of God and uh, looking forward to continuing our journey through the book of Colossians, where today we're going to be looking at the second half of Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 25. And uh, again, as I always say uh, at the beginning of all these videos, if you like my uh, uh, Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram, AP Richards. Uh, do that so that you can share and enjoy these videos. And maybe there's somebody who they're on Instagram, they're not on Facebook, or they're on YouTube and they don't do Facebook or whatever. That's why I put them on all of them. It's a lot more work for me to do it on all three. Let me tell you that. It'd be much easier for me to just pick one and do it on that. But I'm doing that so that you have the opportunity to share them. Paul wrote the book of Colossians because uh, Epaphras had gone after getting saved, we think, under Paul's ministry and set up the church in Colossae. And they started off on the right journey of understanding who Jesus was and faith in, and, in Christ and uh, that being enough for salvation. But then some weird things have started to creep in. And Paul uses this book of Colossians to really address the understanding of who we are in the all-completeness of Christ's work on the cross. In the first half of Colossians, he deals with the uh, theological uh, uh, descriptions of why he's about to make the practical explanations in verses in chapters three and four. Now, this part of Colossians uh, chapter three, this this whole part here, is about serving, and it's about husbands and wives, it's about children and parents, it's a, uh, about servants and masters. And it's something that I do not want to rush through because I really want us to understand what this means. And it doesn't matter if you're married, single or whatever, this is very important for you to understand the concepts that the Apostle Paul talks about in these verses. So let's start off with a a verse that many people, like when they read it, uh, they just don't know what to do with it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. The ancient Greek word submit is essentially a word that's borrowed from the military and it means to become to come under rank, come under. And it speaks of the way that an army is organized uh, among levels of rank with the generals, the colonels, the majors, the captains, sergeants, privates, etc. They're levels of rank and one is obligated to respect those in a higher rank. Now, we know that a person who is a private down the bottom of the chain can be smarter and more talented and even be a better person than a general at the top. But he's still under rank to the general. He isn't submitted to the general so much as a person as he is to the general because the person's a general. In the same way, the wife doesn't submit and come under her husband because he deserves it. She submits and comes under because he is her husband. Submission. Think about the English breakup of that word, submission, sub mission, coming under a mission. That, that, that's what the whole thing is all about. The idea of submission, Warren Weasby says this, the idea of submission doesn't have anything to do with someone being smarter or better or talented, more talented. It has to do with God-appointed order. Therefore, submission means that you're part of a team. And if the family is a team, then the husband is the captain of the team. The wife has her place in relation to the captain and the children have their place in relation to the captain and the wife. And the form of the verb here, uh, which is uh, hypotasethi, hypotasethi, that's a really tough Greek word, shows that the submission is to be voluntary. That's why I had to say that word because there's a lot in it. 
A wife's submission is never to be forced on her by a demanding husband. It is, it is the difference that a loving wife, conscious that her home, just like any other institution, must have a head, and she gladly shows it. That's what Curtis Vaughan says. In essence, it means that a wife volunteers to come under the mission of her husband. Now, that means two things. Number one, uh, it's the husband's responsibility to get a mission and to understand what this family is going after. That's, that's not the role of, of the wife. That, that is a responsibility of the husband. Um, wives submit to your husbands defines the sphere of a wife's submission, which is only to her own husband. The Bible never commands or recommends general submission of all women to all men. That's not in the Bible. It's commanded only in the spheres of the home and the church. And God doesn't command that men have exclusive authority in areas of politics, business, education, and so on. And even in the church, there's freedom for women to, to be pastors and to be, uh, to, uh, be deacons. Uh, there are so many strong women of leadership in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And uh, we, we love that. But there is a God-appointed order. Okay? Now, as is fitting in the Lord is a very crucial phrase. I understand that, and in today's world, I, I know somebody listen, could listen to this and go, well, that is just totally sexist. That is just, that, you know, that means men and, men and women are not equal. That's just not true. Men and women are equal. They have different roles. That's all. This is a crucial phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, because it colors everything that we understand about this passage, because there's been two main wrong interpretations of this phrase, uh, each favoring a certain position. There's the interpretation that favors uh, the husband, and it says that it, as is fitting to the Lord means a wife should submit to her husband as if God, uh, the husband is God himself. And the, the idea is, well, you submit to God in absolutely everything of that question, so you must submit to me uh, and your husband in, in the same absolute way. Um, this, this thinks that as is fitting in the Lord defines the extent of submission. But that's wrong. Simply put, in no place in the Bible does it say that a person should submit to somebody else in that way. In no place in the Bible does, does it teach that an unqualified, without exception, submission except to God and God alone, it's not required. To violate this is to commit the sin of idolatry. Um, the interpretation that favors the wife says that as is fitting in the Lord means, well, I'll submit to him as long as he does what the Lord wants. Uh, and then it's the wife's job to, to decide what the Lord wants. She becomes the leader then by her yes and no. And this, this thinks that as is fitting in the Lord defines the limit of submission. Now, this is also wrong. It degenerates into a case of, well, I'll submit to my husband when I agree with him. Uh, I'll submit to him when he makes the right decisions and when he carries them out the wrong way, right way. But when he makes a wrong decision, he isn't in the Lord. So then I don't have to submit to him. Uh, very simply put, that is not submission at all. Uh, except for those who are just plain cantankerous and argumentative, everyone submits to others when they are in agreement. That's easy. It's only when there's a disagreement that submission is actually tested. So as is fitting in the Lord does not define the extent of a wife's submission. It does not define the limit of a wife's submission. It defines the motive of a wife's submission. It says, wives, submit to your husbands 
because it's part of your duty to the Lord, because it is an expression of your submission to the Lord. They simply submit because it's fitting in the Lord to do it. It honors God's word and his order of authority. It's part of their Christian duty and their relationship. Now, this means that the command to submit is completely out of the realm of my nature or my personality. They have nothing to do it. Well, uh, you know, so wives aren't expected to submit because they're the submissive type. Well, I'm just not the submissive type. Um, they're expected to submit because it's fitting to the Lord. Uh, well, it's just not my personality. I'm a very strong personality. Well, doesn't matter. This has nothing to do with your husband's intelligence. You, you probably are smarter than him. Uh, or whether you're more gifted than him or whether you're more capable than him. Uh, it has everything to do with honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just state the, the, the obvious. This is why it's important if you're a woman to choose your husband very carefully. Because if you're going to choose a Christian husband, you are choosing to come under him. So if you think that you're going to marry somebody who, you know, you're smarter than, you have more gifts than, and you're more capable than, then I don't know whether that's a good idea for you to marry that person. Okay? So I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just throwing it out there. Um, now, as is the case in every human relationship, the command to submit, it's not absolute. There are exceptions to this command for a wife to submit to her husband. When the husband asks the wife to sin, she doesn't have to submit. When the husband is medically incapacitated or he's mentally insane or under the influence of drugs, uh, the wife doesn't have to submit. When the husband's violent and he's physically threatening to her, the wife doesn't have to submit. When the husband breaks the marriage bond by adultery, the wife does not need to submit to her husband uh, being in an adulterous relationship. Oh, well, that's just him. You know how he is. No, you don't have to submit to him if he's going to do that. And this is where the responsibility of the husband come in. So you can't read verse 18 without reading verse 19. They go together. Husbands love your wives. Paul's words to husbands safeguards his words to the wives in the previous verse. Though wives are to submit to their husbands, it never excuses husbands for acting like tyrants over their wives. Instead, a husband has to love his wife. And the ancient Greek word translated here is for love is agape. Remember, there's four different words for love. And Agape love puts an obligation upon the husband. Curtis Vaughan says this, Agape does not denote affection or romantic attachment. Rather, it denotes caring love, uh, a deliberate attitude of mind that concerns itself with well-being of the one who's being loved. So agape love here that a husband is meant to have for his wife is a sacrificial, giving, uh, absorbing kind of love and has little to do with emotion at all. And it has a lot to do with self-denial for the sake of your wife. Agape love gives and it loves because it wants to. It, it doesn't demand or expect repayment for the love that it gives. It gives because it loves. It doesn't love in order to receive. See, what the Apostle Paul really means here, uh, David Guzik puts it this way, husband, continually practice self-denial for the sake of your wife. Now, this agape love is the kind of love that Jesus has for his people. It, it, this is the love that husbands should imitate towards their wives. That's what Ephesians 5.25 is all about. And then we have a very clear statement. Do not be bitter toward them. Now, the implication is perhaps the wife has given the, reason, the husband reason to be bitter. Paul said it. 
Paul says, doesn't matter if she's given you a reason to be bitter. Don't be bitter. No matter how the wife has been towards the husband, do not be bitter. Why? Because agape love loves even when there are obvious and glaring deficiencies. Even when the receiver is unworthy of the love. Means you keep giving it. Okay, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Okay, so now Paul moves on to the relationships between uh, children who are still in their parents' household and under their authority and their parents. Now, for these children, they must not only honour their father and mother, Ephesians 6.2, they have to also obey them and obey them in all things. Uh, when a child is grown and moves out of its parents' household, that, pers- that child's no longer under the same obligation of obedience but they are still under the same obligation of honor, which I know personally is not easy, okay? Uh, A very difficult relationship with my own mother because of mental illness in in her case and very difficult childhood. And and I'm very happy to tell you that I've never nailed how how to honor my mother. I don't, I'm pretty sure I haven't done it the way I should have but that's because I've just struggled. I'm just being honest. It's not like I haven't tried, uh, but but I don't know. I know it's not easy. I'm just trying to relate to you. I understand that honor is not always easy and obedience is not always easy, but it's well-pleasing to the Lord. It's one of the most important reasons for a child obedience is because when a child respects his parents' authority, he's respecting God's order of authority in other areas of his life. And the idea of an order of authority and submission to an order of authority are very important to God because they're part of who he is as his very being. Think about this. The first person of the Trinity is called the Father. The second person of the Trinity is called the Son. And inherent in those titles is a relationship of authority and submission coming under the mission uh, to that authority. The Father exercises authority over the Son and the Son submits to the Father's authority. That's in the very nature and the being of God. And our failure to exercise biblical authority and our failure to submit to biblical authority, it's not just wrong and sad, it sins against the very nature of God. Remember 1 Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion, is, it's, it's, not, it's not good. But then there's a responsibility of fathers. You can't just say to your children, well, you, know, you have to obey me and you have to honor me. No, you, fathers, you have a responsibility to not provoke your children. Children have a responsibility to obey, but parents, and and here actually the word fathers is a a reference to fathers and mothers with the fathers being the leaders, okay, uh, of the household, Uh, have a responsibility to not provoke their children. Parents can provoke their children. They can be too harsh, too demanding, too controlling, unforgiving, or just being angry all the time. And that harshness can be expressed through words, uh, actions, even nonverbal communication. And in most parenting problems, a parent is very quick to blame a child's behavior. It's easy to do that because the problem is usually most evident in the bad behavior of the child. But Paul wisely reminds us that the bad behavior may actually be because you as a parent provoked that child. Now, the word provoke, uh, ASP gives us a definition here of the word provoke. Irritate by exacting commands 
and perpetual fault finding and interference for the sake of interfering. That's what provoke means. So if you're a parent who constantly irritates your children by giving very exacting commands and you're perpetually finding everything that they do wrong and you never give them uh, encouragement for what they're doing right, if you never tell them you're proud of them, if you only ever tell them what they did wrong, if you interfere every time you think they're not doing something right and you tell them, what, no, no, that's wrong, you need to do that, you need to, no, just because I think so, I'm just interfering, uh, then you are provoking your children and the Bible says, don't do that. So in my classic Anthony P. Richards way, just stop it, boom, there you go. Why? Because if you don't stop it, your children will become discouraged. Children who grow up with parents who provoke them become discouraged. The Bible tells you that. that They're not going to feel the love and the support from their parents like they should. They'll come to believe the whole world's against them because they feel that their parents are against them. And it reminds us how important it is to season our parenting with lots of grace. Exactly the same way our Heavenly Father does with us. He parents us with grace. Perhaps we should be as gracious, gentle, forgiving, and long-suffering with our children as God is with us. Okay, verse 22. Now, bond servants. Um, let me, before I get into this, understand slaves back in the time that the Bible was written are not the same way we think of slaves today. Basically, almost everybody was a slave. Uh, like a doctor, uh, a carpenter, anybody who worked for somebody else was considered a slave. Okay, so you have to understand that's that's the that's the 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 uh, context of these particular verses we're about to enter into. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Um, as Christians put on the new man, they're going to show a a proper submissive attitude towards their masters. In other words, in modern day context, your employer, the person who employs you or your supervisor. This is another sphere of God's order of authority. Employees have a God-ordained role of obedience and submission to their employers or supervisors. This is why people who are self-made and they're the boss, they started a company, they own it, and they don't have a boss. This is why those people struggle to come under spiritual authority as described in Hebrews 13, because they don't have to take into account anybody else because in their work, they're the boss. They don't answer to anybody, not even a board. They just do whatever they want. And that's why they struggle because they don't, they don't do that in, in, the, in their life outside of, of uh, spirituality, if you like, and, and, their, and their spiritual walk through their local church. They struggle with spiritual authority. This, this is another sphere of God's authority in our life. Um, Curtis Vaughan, more than half the people seen on the streets of the great cities of the Roman world were slaves. This was the status of the majority of most professional people, such as teachers and doctors, as well as that of people who were uh, tradesmen and craftsmen. Now he says, don't do it with eye service, as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. We're always tempted to work just as hard as we have to. I'm just going to do just enough, thinking that we just have to please man. But God wants every worker to see that ultimately we work for God. Therefore, we should do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man. God promises that he will reward those who work with that kind of heart attitude. The Christian who's dishonest, lazy, unreliable, um, 
has something far worse than just their earthly boss getting upset at them to worry about. Your heavenly boss is going to reprimand you as well. And you should probably know that. Okay? Verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. This is very interesting. Okay. N.T. Wright. One should properly read the inheritance as the reference is clearly to the life of the age to come. This is ironic since in earthly terms, slaves could not inherit property. So there is an inheritance for us and there is an inheritance for us in Christ. But you should also understand that there's an inheritance for you in your work for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The uh, N.T. Wright says this about this also. The, the force of this unusual phrase, uh, the Lord Christ, which Paul uses nowhere else, allows the titles of Lord and Christ to stand together without the name Jesus as well. This could be brought about by a paraphrase. So work for the true master who is Christ, your Messiah. Um, verse 25 but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality this is where it all gets real people when a Christian worker does poorly in their job they should not expect special leniency from their boss especially if their boss is a Christian being a Christian should make you more responsible not less responsible and you will be repaid and there will be no partiality. Uh, for ancient Christian slaves and for modern Christian workers, there's no guarantee on earth of fairness uh, of treatment from those who you work for. I've I, I spoken to somebody just recently this week and they're get, having a really tough time in their work and they're, they're, their boss is just treating them terribly. Um, sometimes partiality means that bad workers are unfairly rewarded and good employees are penalized or even left unrewarded. But Paul assures both uh, our ancient relatives and brethren and us that there is a final rewarding and there's also a final punishment. And with that final reward and that final punishment, there's no partiality. See in Ephesians 6 verse 9, Paul addressed masters and he warned them, hey, there's no partiality with God. In other words, there's a warning just as much to the bosses as there are to the people who work for them. And here he warns servants there's no partiality with God. So Curtis Vaughan says this, In Ephesians, masters are not to think that God is influenced by social position. In the present passage in Colossians, say slaves are not to act unscrupulously just because they know men treat them as irresponsible chattel or goods. Ah, so what's the observation from this passage of Scripture? Uh, I bet you've got a lot of observations. You're probably going to have to watch this one over again. And did he really say that? I can't remember what he said. I'm going to have to watch that one over. Um, there are, let me tell you what my, my general observation is. There are responsibilities to being a Christian. Being a Christian is not just about salvation. Being a Christian is about salvation, accepting the free gift of Christ. And then accepting the responsibilities of how to live as a Christian. And that involves our most basic relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, uh, employer to employee. And these are, these are relationships 
that the Bible addresses how we should actually um, behave. And if you don't make that observation and you want to fight against the word of God, then you're going to impact your eternal inheritance. So my encouragement to you is don't do that. Just understand that God has a way and his way is right. And we have to come under his mission. That's what I say uh, whenever, I, you know, whenever I'm marrying couples or whenever I talk about, hey, I'll say to the, to, to the man, it's your responsibility to come up with a mission. Now, you, you need to involve your wife in that. And it's not like you just go away into a chamber somewhere and then come out and go, oh, I've got the vision and now you have to follow me. No, you have the conversation. You arrive at, the, at it together. Uh, but husbands, you have to own it. And then wives, you, 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 know, you have to come under that mission. But if you've been involved in it and you, and, and you, you, you married the, the person who's on the same trajectory as you, which is the Bible tells us, make sure you're not unequally yoked. In other words, make sure you're heading in the same direction then there's no fight. There's, there's no argument because you, you're both heading in the same direction and you're excited about it. But there's a captain of the team uh, and there's a responsibility for us to, to, to... Men, you have a responsibility to come up to a mission. Let me tell you this while I'm on this, okay? Too many men uh, are, are very happy to let their wives lead because they're lazy. And you know how a lot of men let their wives lead? I'll tell you, this is how they let them lead. Hey, what do you think we should do? Well, I think we should do this. Yeah, let's do that. Or uh, they just ask questions all the time. Well, which one do you want to do? This or this? And then the wife chooses. I think we should do that. Oh, okay. So then I, 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 I posit to you, who's the person leading? The person asking the questions or the person answering the questions? And I would tell you that it's you being lazy allowing your wife to answer the questions and by default now have to take on the weight and responsibility of leadership and mission in your family. But this is the thing, men, you're not understanding, is that when you get to heaven, you will be accountable for those things that you allowed your wife to choose. Not her, you will be. And wives, if you think it's like great that your husband like submits to you and allows you to choose the mission, then you're deceived in that thinking that you're somehow going to be accountable for that. You're not. Your husband is. And so I don't want either husbands or wives to live in a state of deception or misunderstanding who is responsible for what. Men, you are responsible for your mission. Wives, you are responsible to come under that mission. In other words, don't have a competing mission. But husbands and wives are to work together in unity for there the presence of God is. You see, it's not hard. We're not meant to fight against each other. We're meant to fight with each other as husbands and wives. And when you do that, you'll model it for your children. And your children will see that in their parental relationship. And then they will have healthy, fruitful relationships when they enter into their own marriages. Lots in this today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us in all of our relationships. Husbands, wives, uh, children, parents, uh, employees, employers, uh, Lord, help us all to understand that ultimately every single one of us comes under your mission and every one of us must submit to the head, which is Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us would have no problem submitting not just our souls to you, but our lives to you as well. And what we are doing on this planet between now and when you come back or you take us home in Jesus name, I pray. Amen.